to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to resilience, crisis management, business continuity, COVID, anything that's relatable to those subjects, and anything that helps you, your organization, or your community plan for, prepare for, and overcome adverse situations. If there is a topic you'd like us to talk about on the show, or you'd like to be a guest, Please feel free. You can reach me through my LinkedIn profile. I am the only Alex Fullick on LinkedIn, so you can easily find me. And just reach out, and uh, we'll see about getting you on the show or finding someone else to come on and talk about uh, what you want us to uh, touch on. Longtime listeners on Voice America, you'll know that for quite some time, I was talking about the Business Continuity Institute's Virtual World Conference in November. And I was a speaker there, and I had said that uh, I hoped to be able to get maybe some other speakers to come on the show. And today, I am lucky enough to have one of those speakers on the topic of organizational resilience, connecting the dots. I'd like to welcome to the show, Caroline Sapriel. Caroline, welcome back. Very nice to see you again, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here and talking to you today. And I said welcome back for a reason, because hopefully longtime listeners on Voice America will remember you had a show that aired uh, January, I even wrote it down, January 16th, uh, 2020 on crisis leadership. Uh, we met at the uh, Continuity and Resilience Today conference in Toronto in 2019. That's right. Those were the days when you could meet face to face. And uh, it's almost a year. I mean, 16th yeah. of January, we are the 25th. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, how, how things have changed, too. Yes. You know, um, just in case anyone didn't hear that episode, could you take a minute or two and introduce yourself, what you do, and uh, how you got into the, uh, the industry? Of course. So I'm the managing partner of CSNA International. We are a global risk crisis uh, and business continuity consulting firm. Um, we specialize in crisis anticipation, prevention, mitigation, and recovery. In other words, we really help organizations across industry sectors be, be better prepared for crises before, but also prepared to answer or deal with a crisis, but also recover from a crisis. And we've worked around the world for 30 years. This month is our 30th anniversary, so we'll be celebrating of events. Thank you. And, uh, and we, we basically devoted and dedicated ourselves to helping organizations be better prepared, uh, whether it's something they can anticipate and sometimes some things they cannot anticipate. Uh, so the title of your, your uh, show and your, uh, your podcast is absolutely appropriate. Preparing <laughs> for the unexpected. That's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. Now, your topic at BCI uh, was organizational resilience, connecting the dots. So to you, what does organizational resilience mean and represent? Well, what I've noticed over the years is that 
unfortunately, organizations that have crisis management departments or uh, custodians or business continuity custodians or risk managers, quite often they are not connected uh, and they operate in silos. And there's an incredible amount of confusion among these different terms. And uh, we've been advocating an integrated approach for a long time. And I believe that an integrated approach, which looks like detection, anticipation, mitigation, and recovery should be pulled together under one framework. Um, and that really means good and solid operational resilience. Unfortunately, you don't see that a lot. Um, very often risk is in one department or one function. Crisis management is sitting across communication and health and safety or communications and quality. And then you've got the business continuity people that look at business continuity. And I believe that that um, is a recipe for, for, for having holes and, and gaps uh, which are not addressed. Uh, and that was the purpose of our talk, of my talk at, at the BCI World Conference, because I believe there's quite a bit of work to do to try and pull it together. It reminds me of uh, an old saying that uh, a camel is a horse uh, built by uh, different groups that never seem to meet, you know, <laughs> and you end up with a camel instead of an actual horse because nobody, yes. everybody's working in a silo and nobody's talking. Yeah, and, and I actually believe that the, the, the reason everybody's working in silo is because of the historical development of each part of that. So risk has been around for a long time, and it was primarily a financial or insurance in, uh, instrument. And of course, it became more of a safety or a, a big safety instrument as well. Uh, crisis management, crisis communication initially was emergency response for high-risk industries has been around for 40, 50 years. Recently, in the last 20, 30 years, it's been you know kind of developed also in terms of crisis communication. And then business continuity came onto the scene. But if you look at it, business continuity only came onto the scene with Y2K. It didn't exist before because it was the first time ever that businesses and organizations could see some potential failure in front of them they had to prepare for, which in itself is not crisis management because crisis management means that there is a surprise component. Y2K was not a surprise. So the term business continuity really came on the scene with that. Uh, of course, got even more strengthened with 9-11 and then with the financial crisis because everybody looked at how do we prevent failures? How do we uh, uh, put in place a number of mitigations and, and recovery mechanisms so we can deal with these failures? And so because of that historical development, I've seen different organizations taking taking it from the exit, which is business continuity, and try to work backwards, and others starting from crisis management but not connecting the dots with risk management or business continuity. So it's a bit disjointed, and, and there's a lot of inefficiency there. Um, and I think that's the reason. It's a historical development that has made it kind of disjointed. So how do you bring everyone together to create some sort of uh, resilience framework? Well, we developed already quite a few years ago, I think about 15 years ago, um, an integrated business contingency framework, which pulls together risk management, crisis management, and business continuity. Risk management being the preventative um, um, section, the area where you start to look at 
what could go wrong? Um, and this is where you put in place risk management systems with matrix uh, of uh, like, uh, uh, likelihood and severity of impact. You start to plot your risk on a risk register. You build a risk committee. You assign owners to try and look at the potential areas where there could be problems or, or where there is an enhanced risk area. And you try to manage it proactively. The challenge with risk management, in my experience, for a lot of business executives and a lot of people, is that risk hasn't happened. Therefore, it is very abstract. It's very hard for the human psyche to come to terms with something that might happen, unless you're a real professional in this field and you really have trained your mind to consider, oh, this could happen beyond the obvious. It's very abstract for a lot of people. And then comes into the picture uh, ERM, which is enterprise risk management, which is even more technical, even more abstract. And a lot of people don't get it. So therefore, it's relegated to that department of experts and professionals to deal with it for everybody else. But in fact, if you really want to build a risk culture, you have to create a pull-up phenomena where everybody from the shop floor all the way up has a sensitivity for what might go wrong, a risk uh, that could materialize things that are not right and pull them up or bring them up uh, so that they can be dealt with. So that's the preventative area. In the middle, you have what I call the response and management of when a risk has materialized, which is it becomes emergency or a crisis. And in there, you have emergency response, crisis management, crisis um, communication, these are plans that are designed to ease or to take the pain away from difficult situation by having a modus operandi for the teams so that they don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. In fact, those plans can be perceived to be quite gener generic. Uh, and God forbid you build your crisis plans on specific scenarios because you'll never make it. So, that is the way to respond, the way to be prepared. How do we organize ourselves so that we can work through these disruptions and manage it as quickly, as efficiently as possible with ultimately protecting the peer principle, which is people, environment, asset, reputation. The focus should always be in that order. If you do it in that order, you have a chance as retaining trust uh, with state, from stakeholders and carrying your, your activities, not so only from an asset operational financial, but also from a reputational point of view. Beyond that is business continuity. Of course, every time there's a crisis, that means that there are a number of disruptions. Things fail and they have impact. Now, if you do your risk management uh, uh, process properly, you will have in your matrix and your risk register to identify a number of critical risks. Those critical risks need to be owned up by someone. Plans and mitigating actions need to put in place. And if a critical risk um, materializes, it becomes a crisis. And that crisis may have business continuity consequences. Therefore, for every critical risk should be a series of business continuity plans. Business continuity plans are often scenario-based. So for instance, <clears throat> a pandemic is a major disruption, as we know. What are the business continuity plans that you need to have in place to be able to withstand this mega crisis? 
And there can be a number of them, depending on your activities, your scope, what you do, your geographies, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, unfortunately, there is confusion and it is not pulled together. But for it to be pulled together means you can have a view before, you know how to handle it during, and you know what to do afterwards or immediately during to secure as much as possible the continuation of your activities despite the disruption. Now, that gives me a question because um, a lot of what a lot of organizations tend to forget is the after part, which is if you, you're not learning from what you just went through, all those different pieces that you explained, if you're not learning, then you're not actually making yourself resilient. You know, you're, you're just kind of, okay, we made it through. Well, now you're going to face the same thing again, you know, a few months down the road when something similar occurs because you're not making a change, you're not learning something, uh, you know, you're, you're not being resilient. So what do you, what should we do once we've, you know, um, th- that last part, you know, the before, yeah, during, so, and after, what should we do there? So as much as I said that the risk part was the preventative, the crisis and emergency is the response part, the business continuity is the restore, the restore and curative part. Everything that is coming out of there needs to be fed back into that risk process. Otherwise, you miss opportunities. And unfortunately, you're absolutely right. It happens very often. Miss opportunities to improve and close gaps and create improvement plans. The challenge is when a big crisis is over, a lot of people get so fed up, you have fatigue, like there will be and there already is fatigue with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And so people wanted so badly to be back in their business as usual or normal mode that the appetite for learning from mistakes is uh, what makes um, the difference between an average organization in my mind and a high reliability organization where actually risks and failures are seen as opportunities to do what we do better and be stronger, be more robust So what can be done afterwards? It starts with formal after-action reviews. Uh, So if you've had a major failure, uh, whether it's caused by yourself or outside, it's almost irrelevant. If if you're a victim of an outside event, you still have learnings to take on how you handled that outside event. Mm -hmm. If if the failure is, is actually internal because something failed in your system, in our own system, even more so. So you have a formal after-action review, which really looks at what was the problem. Uh, After-action reviews actually is is a term coined by the U.S. military um, during the first Gulf War. And the idea that for every project and every undertaking, there is a formal process to capture the learning and create an improvement plan. Uh, Project management uh, calls it lessons learned. But do you think... um, Do you think organizations sometimes skip that part or don't want to do that part because after action reports or lessons learned, whatever term an organization wants to use, those exercises end up becoming uh, finger pointing exercises and blame games. And then people shy away uh, from from actually wanting to contribute. This is what I learned, but I know you're going to blame me for what I learned, so I'm not going to say anything. Yes, I agree. I think that is part of the problem. And you find the same in audit processes when an audit is, is undertaken uh, some, you know, for compliance. Very often people are concerned about being finger pointed. 
And I think that goes back to the beginning. What kind of culture do you want in an organization? Mm-hmm. Do you want a culture that where people are, sh- are shying away from reporting problems or expressing issues because they're afraid they're going to be looked at or you only report problems instead of solutions uh, and they're afraid of being finger pointed. So I think that's a, definitely a factor. I think the fatigue is a factor, um, mm. but it, it's, it's a repeat, you know, it gets repeated in history. Um, and many years ago, I, 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 and I'll use this as an example. I read a fantastic book, but one of the, um, by an American who was stationed in, in, um, in Yunnan, in the south of China, uh, Hunan, sorry, working with, uh, as part of the early precursor of the CIA, which was called the OSS. Um, at the time, um, there was a, 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 it was before the end of the war, it was during the, the Mao and, and, and during the, um, the revolution, and before the war ended. And the American State Department believed that there was a lot to learn from what Mao was doing, especially because the war was going on and they were trying, the Americans were trying to fight the Japanese. And so they agreed and Mao agreed and Judo and all his, uh, all his generals to have a, a small team of American OSS officers stationed with them in Hunan to operate, uh, to observe how the Chinese communists were fighting the Japanese in China which was primarily guerrilla tactics. Mm-hmm. Well, then we all know that the bomb, the, you know, Hiroshima took place and, and that ended the war. All those incredible learnings were buried deep in the State Department. And when the Vietnam War happened, nobody, absolutely nobody, went out and looked at this up. And in fact, exactly the same tactics were used by the Viet Cong. And I think that's a very good example in a very big way, in an extremely huge sort of world event way, that it also happens that people, leadership changes, people have different priorities. So, oh, and people don't learn from mistakes, unfortunately. So I think it's a combination of that fatigue. Um, and so I think the AAR is is a first step. There should be always an AAR or a series of AAR after a major event. And from that, I think it's smart to create some case studies, create a template for case studies that deletes uh, or that removes any reference to confidential detail, but a, a template that can actually be shared with different operations around the world, especially when, um, you know, when it's a first event in the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, ra- we ran in, in, after, after SARS during the H1N1 actually period, a client of ours asked us to run an assessment of their preparedness throughout Asia Pacific and how they, had hand- how they would handle H1N1 and, and so on and so forth. Well, we interviewed and worked with a number of teams across the region and the China team it turned out that through this exercise, the China team had put in place a number of pandemic plans that nobody knew about because they had to improvise on the fly during SARS. And the assessment uncovered those plans that had been buried at the bottom of a, of a drawer. And they were able to use them for enhanced pre- preparation for H1N1. So that's an example of a missed opportunity of work that was done and was not shared. Hmm. And on that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking with Caroline Sapriel today, 
and her BCI Virtual World Conference topic, Organizational Resilience, Connecting the Dots. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tax laws are constantly changing. How can you keep up? Tune in to the Tax Answers Advisor with host Marcelino Dodge. By working together year-round, we'll help you implement proactive tax strategies to ensure you are paying the least amount of tax possible and work to increase your business cash flow. We'll help you file your business and individual tax returns accurately, safely, and properly the first time. Listen every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. In business, many leaders have a great vision, but find their companies are lacking adequate execution. Transformative Experts with host Chris Elias takes you behind the scenes with real-life business leaders and transformative experts who can pinpoint why. Listen to learn how company culture drives execution to optimize results. How can you afford to miss it? Tune in live every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Everybody has the key to a good story. Business is made up of some of the best. Starting a business from the ground up. Acquisitions. Reinventing business and personal lives. Stories of fraud. Lessons. Good stories. And not so good ones. They all come together on Business Disrupted with Ted Gavin. We'll learn what lives behind the scenes of some of the most interesting figures and companies in business. Tune in every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. We are talking with Caroline Sapriel today about organizational resilience, connecting the dots. Lots of great information there in the first segment, Caroline. Now I'd like to uh, talk about what are some of the common themes and factors of today's crises? Um, I think it's, it is interesting to look at these common themes and they have changed over the years. I started in this field about 30 years ago 
And I still remember the fear of clients because CNN could be on their doorstep and it was the beginning of 24-7 cable news. And people were like, oh my God, you know. And of course, if CNN was sending a crew to do a story on something specific and an event happened around the corner, they would be there in an instant. Well, over the years, everybody's gotten used to that. I remember at the beginning, people were saying, uh, oh my God, how do I, you know, we didn't call them in. How do we deal with this 24 seven uh, cable news? Well, now we have social media, fake news, uh, AI, everything that is compounding that sort of speed of information and disinformation alike, which is very difficult and can be intimidating, especially mm-hmm. because it's in flux. The social media of today is not the social media of eight years ago. Um, and, and the fact is that it is degenerating to a state where people are beginning to really wonder whether there should be a level of oversight on some of these mm. um, so-called free internet, the same way as broadcasters have a number of oversight uh, policies and, 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 and framework. So I think media, social media definitely is a key factor, but it's a key factor that reflects another one, which is globalization and the interdependencies of systems. So globalization, everybody was brandishing the globalization flag because it you know, symbolized the free world, free movement of people, of goods and everything else. With that comes a raft of problems because to be globalized, everything is connected and interconnected. So a flood in Thailand can cause a massive disruption to auto industry because manufacturers, as happened in 2011, are majorly disrupted by factories that are flooded and cars that cannot get off and be exported, as an example. And there are multiple examples of that. There's a wonderful book by um, uh, called The Butterfly Defect that explains very, very well which I thought was very inspiring when I read it. Uh, it's by Golding from the London School of, of Economics uh, of how this interconnectedness and dependency is actually brought a raft of enhanced risks and makes it so much more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, the second, um, the, and the other two I would say that are attached to globalization is climate. Um, we we got a planet that we're finally having to deal with. And so climate is not dealing with borders. It happens everywhere. Climate extremes is another one. And of course, health, and as we're living it today. Um, and so all these factors are coming together and they're compounding any disruption or any crisis. And you put on top of that public outrage. So the internet, the media has opened up so much, the ability for people to express their outrage about something, to galvanize and pull together incredible, mobilized support to express outrage. Uh, So a lot of crises today are actually a reflection of societal pressure and the general public saying, we're fed up and you got to do this differently. So it's all connected, and those are the forces that I would identify. Whereas 20 years ago, if I had told clients, "Yeah, you have to look at public outrage," but they, you know, it was the pressure wasn't the same because it wasn't brought to bear in the same way. Um, we didn't have social media, we didn't have the internet. So I think those are the main ones. Are there um, differences because the, the way you described some of them, a, a flood is can be a sudden event, and um, my, with dependencies, I was thinking the uh, Fukushima 
uh, incident in Japan and the tsunami that uh, triggered all of that. Um, is there a difference or what is the difference between some of those crises that are sudden, like an earthquake, uh, you know, floods? And um, you talked about in your presentation, uh, smoldering crises. Yes. So what's the, the difference between uh, those? Okay, so an event or, or a sudden crisis or event-based crisis is a, a massive accident, an, an explosion, a fire, uh, a, a, um, an earthquake, um, all those things that are, yes, they might happen, but it's very hard to pinpoint when or how they could happen and what is the likelihood that they could happen. Now, you could, of course, say that Indonesia has got a serious problem with their safety and therefore they need to do something about it at this point. But otherwise, air accidents, even as an example, are very hard to predict. So those I would consider sudden. Uh, the ones that are much harder to kind of get a handle on, even at the risk level, that's why when we talk about a risk register, we really need to include issues. And what I mean by issues, an issue is a gap between an organization and its public on a particular topic. So... To illustrate that, a pharmaceutical firm may have uh, animal testing um, in order to test the products. Uh, there's a whole body out there of people who are dead set against animal testing. So there is an issue. If the gap becomes too big and there's no dialogue, well, some activists may show up at the lab, free a bunch of monkeys, or actually take people hostages. And then you've got an event as a result of an issue which has been going on for a long time and has not been addressed sufficiently. It's again intangible and much harder for organizations to get a handle on because issues that cause crises or are smoldering are much harder to detect, much harder to manage, and much harder to get traction about from colleagues and other executives and other management or managers or other members of the industry. Uh, wouldn't, and that so, be a part of, wouldn't that be a part of the uh, risk factors that you mentioned, uh, you know, earlier on, you know, uh, capturing some of those and paying attention to them? I totally agree. Uh, but if you ask most people, and I've seen hundreds of definitions from different companies, an issue is, is often described as an incident. An issue is not an incident. An issue is exactly what it says, which is a gap in perception about a topic between an organization and its publics. It can create, it can be at the source of an incident. So unless people really understand issues for what they are, they're going to have a hell of a time to actually include those potential or issues or potential issues in their risk registers. But they should, especially with, if you take into account one of the factors I mentioned, which is public outrage. And there are plenty examples of those. Uh, if you look at uh, the, the outrage that went on in China with Dolce Cabana's latest campaign with this Chinese model struggling to eat spaghetti with the chopsticks, which was caused outrage in the industry. It is not the first time. Um, that Dolce Cabana has a crisis as a result of an issue or something that they hadn't thought about, which in this case is cultural insensitivity. A few years ago in Hong Kong, Dolce Cabana um, had a silly policy that people could not take pictures of their storefront uh, that were decorated before Chinese New Year. 
So a Hong Kong shopper came out of the store and wanted to take a picture and was told by a security guard policy, you can't take pictures, which in itself is a little bit ridiculous. But then, um, so he posted something on Facebook. He said, oh, this is really weird. How come we can't take pictures of this beautiful storefront? Well, a few weeks, a few days later, I don't know exactly, some Chinese mainland shoppers came out of the store with lots of shopping and turned around and took lots of pictures and posted them on the internet. Outrage, because at the root of that was perceived discrimination by Hong Kong people so we, or, you know, in favor of mainland shoppers. Hmm. And again, Dolce Cabana took three weeks out of Milan to apologize and recognize that this was cultural insensitivity. And in fact, this movement on Facebook galvanized an incredible following. And they had demonstration on the street. A lot of stores were closed by the police just because fundamentally there was an issue growing in the Hong Kong population that Chinese shoppers are treated more favorably than homegrown shoppers. Hmm. And that's just an example. Well, it's interesting that that definition you had of uh, issue, um, because in project management, an issue is something that has to occur first. Although if it hasn't occurred and there's no impact, it's still a risk. And I, maybe that's why some people um, don't, using your, your, uh, your title here, don't connect the dots. You know, um, sometimes an issue, yes. uh, if I'm interpreting this correctly, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Sometimes it, an issue hasn't occurred, per se, but an issue is a topic you need to address. Is that a Absolutely. correct way of saying that? Gap. Yes. Yeah. And it's a gap between the organization that has that topic and the, the lack of recognition that some stakeholders or a large part of the public or their stakeholder are actually not seeing this the same way as they should or mm -hmm. as, as they are. And therefore, you have this gap. And unless this is addressed, and what is interesting, where is if you have an incident-based crisis, you aim to resolve it by putting out the fire and doing all the things. You, an issue sometimes cannot be resolved. But it needs to be addressed. And as long as there's dialogue, it doesn't uh, go up to a, a, a flashpoint. It stays, it can stay dormant or it can stay what is managed because there is dialogue. Mm -hmm. I mean, we live in a, a world with multiple opinions. You're going to have at any given time a group of people that are against or don't agree with what you do. And if you don't recognize that, the, um, the opinions dig in and it becomes a bigger problem, um, and, and then it flares up, and it bubbles up, and it's like a fire. It's like a smoldering. And then all of a sudden, something happens, and the flame comes up. That's why we call this a smoldering crisis. Sometimes smoldering crises are just a result of deliberate cover-ups. The Volkswagen emission can scandal is a classic example of a mm. smoldering crisis. There was no event. It was a revelation. Yeah. of something going on for 10 years that was not addressed. So in this case, it wasn't so much that there was a disagreement with a group of stakeholders. It was much more a fact that the company went ahead and did something, kept it under wrap, hoping that it would be kept under wrap, except this started getting traction and all of a sudden there was a whistleblower. So this is, so more and more, um, we are advocating clients that, that they should have 
two definitions of crisis in their crisis manual. One is an event-based and the other one is a smoldering one. And that helps management response teams to be more attuned, have more better antennas for those types of smoldering um, situations. So when these situations occur and to, to create, to go back to the resilience part, who needs to be in the room to help uh, address the situations, but also instill this sense of resilience going forward? Who should be in the room for these kind of things? Well, I think you need to have a custodian of the topic. So whether it's the risk manager, the crisis manager, business continuity doesn't really matter. But in order to pull sufficient data and information and inputs, there should be what is called a risk and issues committee, which meets regularly. It could be top managers or representatives of different functions that have actually their antennas, both internal and external, to flag things that are seem to be getting traction or attention and try to scenario plan them to see whether that could actually eventually escalate to a point of of disruption and crisis. So I think a committee needs to take that seriously. So um, organizations that have real well-functioning risk committees that include the CEO uh, are the ones that are really building resilient organizations. When the risk committee is delegated too, too low in the organization, or fragmented. So for instance, the safety people will have a, a, a risk committee. The finance people will have another risk committee. It, yeah, it does, yeah. Again, you're creating a disjointed, disconnected um, process and system, which is a problem in itself. And on that note, we've come to the end of our second segment. We are talking with Caroline Sapriel today on the topic of organizational resilience, connecting the dots. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tax laws are constantly changing. How can you keep up? Tune in to the Tax Answers Advisor with host Marcelino Dodge. By working together year-round, we'll help you implement proactive tax strategies to ensure you are paying the least amount of tax possible and work to increase your business cash flow. We'll help you file your business and individual tax returns accurately, safely, and properly the first time. Listen every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. In business, many leaders have a great vision, but find their companies are lacking adequate execution. Transformative Experts with host Chris Elias takes you behind the scenes with real-life business leaders and transformative experts who can pinpoint why. Listen to learn how company culture drives execution to optimize results. How can you afford to miss it? Tune in live every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. 
Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Everybody has the key to a good story. Business is made up of some of the best. Starting a business from the ground up. Acquisitions, reinventing business and personal lives. Stories of fraud, lessons, good stories, and not so good ones. They all come together on Business Disrupted with Ted Gavin. We'll learn what lives behind the scenes of some of the most interesting figures and companies in business. Tune in every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. We are talking with Caroline Sapriel today about organizational resilience and connecting the dots. Caroline, in your presentation, you talked about the culture ladder in crisis management. What is that? So the culture of the crisis management culture ladder is something we inspired ourselves from the Shell Hearts and Mind um, safety HSC or safety ladder that was developed by Shell um, because we wanted clients to recognize that you can never be perfectly prepared for a crisis. It is not a destination. It's a journey. The world around us evolves and therefore there are new risks and we need to be cognitive of those risks and take them into account and evolve our preparedness for those risks um, in order to be resilient, in order to be more and more resilient. Unfortunately, it can be perceived to be ungrateful because you can never say, oh, now we're perfectly prepared. Um, As long as you move up that ladder, I think that's what's important. When I started in this business, the majority of businesses, except those high-risk industries that were legislated to be prepared, were really hovering at the bottom of the ladder, which is pathological. Who cares as long as we don't get caught and (laughs) and reactive uh, to the middle part, which is we are kind of prepared. We do things we probably could do more, and we continuously look for ways to being prepared. So my feeling is that majority of industries are hovering around the middle. There's probably very few that are in the sort of uh, progressive state where they really look at uh, risks and crises as opportunities to do their business better. So as long as you keep going up that ladder, you're doing well. Um, the, you know, I think it's 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 a nice framework. It's not meant to be a test. It's a little bit of a benchmark for yourself to say, okay, where were we five years ago? Can we say that we have actually moved up that ladder today? Well, I guess that's, um, uh, you know, if, if you're not moving up the ladder, does that mean, and this is something else you, you mentioned, does that mean you're a train wreck? Not necessarily, but it means that all the efforts you've put in for so many years are a little bit wasted. And we've had situations like that with clients who would prepare and 
train year on year and really improve. And for whatever reasons, a couple of years gap, go in there. And when you go back in the training room, you realize they've gone backwards in terms of skills, in terms of preparedness. So we've had that. Now, I think the difference I want to make between crisis and repetition train wreck is the impact of stakeholders on crises. And in fact, in the integrated contingency planning model that we offer, there is a line running through the sort of pre, during, and after that talks about stakeholder engagement, stakeholder communication. Uh, People need to know. Uh, need to know um, how they're impacted, how they could get impacted, what their role is in that preparation, uh, what else they can do. One of the critical difference, the critical difference between a crisis and a reputation train wreck is the loss of stakeholder trust. So in a crisis, it can be difficult to resolve. It can last a long time. A lot of people can be impacted. But if at the end of the day, the general consensus is that stakeholders' trust has been preserved and in some cases even enhanced, then you're okay. You will can turn the page and, and you will have learned. In the other part where it's a train wreck, um, stakeholders have lost the, uh, the trust. They're not, um, they don't have confidence anymore. Uh, and to recover from that is much harder. And in fact, some businesses plainly don't. They either have to be rebranded or they get acquired or something else happens because the stakeholders are saying, I don't like you and I don't trust you and I don't like doing business with you, even though you actually solve the problem. So I think that's the main difference. And I think clients have to have a view as an ultimate mission and objective in a crisis to prevent a reputation train wreck accept they might be in a crisis, accept that there are causes that they could do their best, but they have to uh, prevent that loss of stakeholder trust because their stakeholders are their best currencies. They have they give the organization the license to operate. When a crisis occurs, if I'm a stakeholder, and I'll use you and I as an example, um, I'm one company, you're another company, uh, you have a crisis, I your reputation um, so far hasn't been hit by me. Do I base that until I see what your response is, whether you're responding well or not responding well, and then I decide, uh, you know what, your reputation, I'm not sure I want to work with you anymore based on, based on the decisions you're now making. You know, it, it seems like there's a bit of a gap there where as a stakeholder, you're kind of holding your breath. What are they going to do? You know, and then you don't make your decision, you know, until, you know, Caroline has made her her actions known, you know. I think, I think that that's very true. And that's why we advocate, uh, uh, you know, active stakeholder mapping. A lot of organizations think they map their stakeholders by just making lists. Mapping a stakeholder is really trying to position whether they're on your side, they're against you, or they're neutral. In a crisis, the ones that are neutral can shift. They can go against you. So anticipating those shifts, anticipating what actions those stakeholders could take against you to make the situation worse um, is is a critical, critical uh, executive uh, task. And actually, executives need to be trained in that. Uh, It's not necessarily a complex process, but there has to be a tool and a framework for that. Once you've mapped the stakeholders, you can zero in on the ones that are really going to make the difference for you. And you're absolutely Mm -hmm. right. Stakeholders kind of wait and see to see what the others are doing. They're influenceable. 
uh, especially in today with social media and everything that's going on. Um, so I think you need to proactively engage those that you think you can positively influence. Of course, if, if you're an oil and gas company, you got a major spill where now is perhaps not the time to reach out to Greenpeace because Greenpeace is not really going to be on your side anyways. Yeah. So who else do you need to reach out to? There is a false sense, I think, among executive teams that they have the power to influence everyone. And in a crisis, you need to zero in on the ones where you can have influence and really keep a careful watch on all these stakeholders and how they interconnect. And that's what we talk about, a stakeholder map, a stakeholder web. Um, and we, we developed a process called Untangle very much for that reason, because it's a little bit like untangling this, this web of, of connections that actually can make the situation worse. I am, after all these years in my field, I am a firm believer that the stakeholder pressure can really make a crisis worse, even if the problem is actually resolved. Now you got me thinking, Do state, can stakeholders influence other stakeholders? Yes. Yes, absolutely. For the better order? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So we do that in normal life on a day-to-day basis. When we have conversations <laughs> with friends and colleagues and associates, we try to convince each other that that uh, we, you know, we are, we're better, we, we see, and, and I, think, uh, I think in a crisis, it's very much the case. Uh, unfortunately, there's another side to this today, which you see in COVID, uh, in the COVID crisis is the conspiracy theories, but you also saw with the American yeah. elections. I think this is where uh, families are really broken because some member of the family has gone completely on the other tangent of these conspiracy theories. And there seems to be so little things you can do to bring them back to sort of a middle. I think those are extreme. They have to be monitored because these people, as we know, and we've seen in the last few can have massive impact. A lot of violence can be coming out of that. So then there's not much you can do to prevent it, but you've got to be prepared to handle it, which is different. Mm-hmm. So yes, stakeholders can influence each other. That's why you also have industry associations that speak on behalf of a particular sector that try to speak and and put out a better, uh, a more understandable version of the problem to the public or the stakeholders. Yes, they can very much so. Um, Would that be a part of your your, um, mapping during a crisis? You're mapping your stakeholders is, uh, you know, I need to focus on uh, a vendor, but a works very closely, has a good relationship with B vendors. So we need to also focus on B because A could change their, you know, uh, their opinion of us. Absolutely. And, and uh, so it is, it is, is a methodology around it that is not necessarily difficult to grasp, but needs to be really embraced by organizations to, uh, to get a handle on this, to be more proactive. And it's incredible how much I see, uh, when I work with with companies that you know stakeholder mapping is still for a lot of people just a list of stakeholders. What do you do with a list? Oh, so I know that this could be a stakeholder. The idea of stakeholder mapping is that you understand where they are and that you can do something with it. To just mm-hmm. list them um, is is only the starting point. In fact, you can do that before a crisis. Yeah, it's just a list. It <laughs> doesn't yeah, exactly. add really any exactly. any additional value. It is quite. Mm-hmm. It's quite remarkable because a lot of people spend time and effort and money on stakeholder engagement, but the actual mapping process 
has a lot to be desired for. It's, it's, it's not always very efficient. Well, believe it or not, we only have two and a half minutes left. Could you take a minute and a half with any final thoughts on organizational resilience connecting the dots? Yes, I, I, I'd love to. And, and I think it is important to maybe connect it back to the world we've lived in now for a year. Um, I think one of the challenges um, for public health crisis, and this one exemplifies it, is the inability to come to terms with how do I communicate something I don't really know a lot about without creating panic um, and at the same time prepare for the worst. So the saying is, um, you know, uh, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. I've written a blog recently about this. I think it should be reverse. It's prepare for the worst and hope for the best. I think managements, governments need to prepare for the worst. It is essential to be able to withstand any crisis, but especially a crisis of this magnitude, whilst at the same time standing up, giving leadership, communicating effectively, not mincing your words, but making it in such a way that is palatable for the public to accept, okay, we're in good hands. Mm -hmm. And there's not many places where that has been well done. So the stakeholder mapping, in a way, brings the ability to uh, plan for worst-case scenario uh, but the human psyche is not very comfortable with worst case scenario. If we're in a bad situation, how can we continue to think that it could even get worse, which is exactly what's happened. Yeah. So it's a very much, a, a, you know, a leadership um, skill and attribute. And an, I don't think a lot of people have demonstrated that as well as they, they could have. And um, the worst case scenario keeps changing. Yes, no. <laughs> and it's going to get worse before it gets better. And it's a very famous adage of crisis management. Crises get worse before they get better. Mm -hmm. uh, but the human psyche doesn't like that. <clears throat> Every time yeah. there's a glimmer of hope, we think, oh, we're done. We've turned yeah. the corner. We're good now. Hence, everybody going on holiday and doing all sorts of things they shouldn't have done because they thought it was over. But, yeah. you know, can you blame people uh, I don't know, but you could definitely put more responsibility on those that are in charge to do this work of planning for the worst and giving hope to people. And on that note, I think that's the perfect spot to, to end. Caroline, thank you very much again for uh, talking uh, with me today. I know it's your, your second appearance here and it was enjoyable the first time and it was enjoyable this time. So thank you very much for sharing your time. Thank you, Alex. It was a pleasure. Um, and uh, stay healthy. Uh, be careful also. And, and uh, hopefully next time we speak, we will not be in a pandemic anymore. Um, With an ocean apart. Yeah, we're, maybe we'll be uh, back as we were in Toronto face to face. That would be nice. <laughs> That's right. And then people should continue to prepare for the unexpected in the meantime. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you. And you're very welcome. And to everybody listening and watching. Stay prepared, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.